All right. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eats up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. And when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Well, Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Um, thank you for your perspective. And if humanity is not aware of the plight they are in because of their sin, uh, they will never turn to you. And um, so, Lord, teach us tonight as we look at the text. Uh, inform us, encourage us, and help us to, to think your thoughts after you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So perhaps, yes, you may be seated, sorry. You know, when it still happens, like it just happened tonight, but when I was younger in ministry, I was so nervous, and then I would do like a wedding and I would always forget to have the audience stand when the bride came in. And that always infuriated the mother of the bride. And then I would start and never ask people to sit down. And yeah. And then Susan Sherman, uh, for probably a couple years, uh, I would look up and she would be going like this before the sermon because I would just be so nervous and anxious I would forget to pray sometimes. Uh, so anyway, crowds do strange things to people, but it's, it's good to be humble. <laughs> All right, well, perhaps you notice that Psalm 14 is nearly identical to Psalm 53. It's almost verbatim. Uh, the only difference, uh, and it's found in Psalm 53, is verse 5 of Psalm 53, which adds, uh, he says, There they are in great fear where no fear was, for God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. That's the only difference uh, between the two Psalms. Uh, they're, they're identical. Both Psalms are attributed to David, so uh, there's no plagiarism. It's okay. You can rewrite your own Psalm and add some additions, but of course, both are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he can quote himself when he wants and how he wants, wherever he wants in the text of Scripture. Uh, so we'll have to permit that as well. Um, in Romans 3, perhaps you notice some of the similar language, Romans 3, 10 through 12, Paul quotes Psalm 14, 2 and 3, uh, which is also identical to Psalm 53, 2 and 3. Uh, Paul actually uses those two passages uh, from the psalm to basically sum up his argument in Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse um, 8. And the whole thing, uh, as you know, Romans chapter 1, 18 to the end of, uh, well, to chapter 3, verse uh, 8, uh, well, not 8, 19, chapter 3, verse 19 is Paul's argument regarding the depravity of humanity. 
And the, the, the psalm just sums it up. Yeah. Um, David's argument uh, and Paul's argument are the same, but of course, you know, Paul's is more articulate, it's more theological. But I would imagine, I'm not a songwriter, but it's probably easier to be articulate in your thesis than it is into a song, don't you think? I'm not a songwriter, so maybe I'm wrong. But um, anyway, even in the song, uh, the psalm here, the message is clear. The psalm begins with what the fool says and where his foolishness leads him, verse 1. And then it, 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 uh, it comes to God's evaluation of all humanity, of every one of us. Nobody's excluded from it, just, just like they're not excluded in Romans chapter 1 through 3. Then uh, it, we move from what God has said, how he evaluates mankind, and then David, of course, he gets to give his opinion, uh, verse 4. And then David suddenly in the text gets prophetic, uh, and most commentators say it, it becomes a passage of eschatology, of end times, because he's looking forward to the, the, basically the final judgment of the wicked, verse 5 and 6, and then the, he talks about the final redemption of God's people, verse 7. So let's, let's look at it. Verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does Good. This morning I asked my son um, about what April 1st is. It's National Atheist Day. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, when you see uh, at least this Hebrew word, when it's translated as fool, it's not really talking, it is, but not to the exclusion of someone who is unwise in their decisions. It's not talking about a buffoon or a simpleton. This kind of fool is a vile person. This is the fool, the vile person, the perverse person, the corrupt person that, that says these kinds of things. So it's, it's, this word um, is talking about things within a moral category. Uh, David is referring to the imaginations. What is it that actually comes out of the fool's heart, this uh, corrupt Person. The fool says that there is no God. There is no God. Uh, how many of you knew that atheism has been around for so long? Now, it, it has always been the minority uh, throughout human history, as it is today. Uh, but it is, it's been around for a very, very long time. Atheism. I want to, real quick, uh, talk about theism, uh, or different kinds of theism, and then we'll come back to atheism. I don't know why I wanted to talk about these with you, um, but why not? Uh, there's a number, as you know, a number of theisms, or we might say religions in the world. Um, they're not all created equal, of course. So maybe we'll touch on some you've never heard of before. Uh, a theist, everyone in this room is a theist, okay? A theist believes in the existence of God, but what is omitted from, from that? It doesn't say which God, right? Yeah. Uh, monotheists, they believe in only one God. Now that represents Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, right? So that uh, is a little more narrow, but it still doesn't um, fit for all of us or one particular group by itself. And then there's polytheists. Uh, that actually broadens the term. Um, 
A polytheist is someone who believes in many, many gods. Um, we, you know, of Hinduism. Hinduism is a group that is polytheistic. Uh, now, not all of Hinduism is. It's, you can't just uh, say Hinduism is this. Just like you can't say Buddhism is this. Some Buddhists are theists. Most Buddhists are atheists. That's something most people don't know in the West. Most of them are atheists, uh, but some of them do practice a form of theism. Mormonism is actually uh, a polytheistic religion, but they only worship three gods, sort of. Okay. Uh, some of Catholicism, uh, as you track it in Southeast Asia, in India, uh, in some parts of South America, is synchronized with polytheism. And so um, they, polytheists have a way of just absorbing uh, other religions. And, but then they're even among some Catholics where that's not too big of a problem because of the issue of Mary and the saints and things like that. And so there is, among some of them, uh, a polytheistic kind of attitude, though what we might say is in the pantheon of all of these divine persons, they would say that God the Father probably exceeds them all. He is the greatest among them. And there's many problems with all of that. Tritheism. The tritheist is the Mormon. Okay? Uh, they believe that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are three distinct gods, each with a distinct personality. Uh, of course, that's contrary to the way that God defines himself. Um, there is but one God. God says, I only know of one. Uh, if there was another one, would you point him out to me? He's being sarcastic in that whole, uh, that whole major section of Isaiah. Uh, but Isaiah 43.10, God says, there was no God formed before me, and there shall be none after me. Okay, and that conflicts with, uh, of course, every cult that is out there almost. Um, in the scriptures, we're taught that the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, they consist of one divine essence or nature, but each has a distinct personality. We call this the Trinity. All right, there's also uh, the pantheist who, be who believes that, that everything is God or God is everything. Everything is God, God is everything. They reject the idea that God is uh, distinct from his creation. Uh, they believe that the world and everything in it is a manifestation of God himself, and that so all of creation uh, is uh, of the same substance as God, okay? Um, pantheism is represented in some forms of Hinduism or the animism of many of the Native Americans, um, um, run-of-the-mill spiritism, things like that. And we don't want to leave out the, the panentheist. How many of you guys have heard of panentheism? Okay, it's a little newer uh, or at least of more lately it's been articulated better. And uh, panentheism is known as process theology or bipolar theism. That would be a, a diagnosis, I think. And uh, yeah, it's far more difficult um, to explain than any of the other ones. Uh, but the problem with it, the bottom line, is that God... Uh, is reduced. So all of his attributes that we say omni, that he's all-powerful, he's, 
He's omniscient. He knows everything. Uh, his, we talk about his sovereignty over all things. Um, it's, it's diminished so that he, he definitely is not all-powerful. Uh, he doesn't know everything, but he's really intelligent so he can get the, the odds right, essentially, in panentheism, in process theology. And in process theology, God is in process of many, many things. He's, he's becoming what he will be, or maybe he never will be, but he's becoming something, or always becoming something. It's, it's, very, uh, it's very beneath the dignity of God. Um, very sad. Uh, in many ways, he's more human uh, than, he is, than he is God. He's actually, uh, in, he's actually beneath the biblical description of angels. And the problem is, is that process theology is quickly creeping into evangelicalism, very quickly. Uh, many people are embracing it. Some people see it, uh, use process theology as a way to... Um, you know, the whole debate between free will and predestination. And this is how they try to figure it out. Uh, so rather than just taking the scriptures at face value, um, they reduce God and his sovereignty. And then we can, we can uh, uh, have no compromise from their perspective with God's sovereignty and man's free will. It, it's just, it's a mess. Anyway, panentheism, uh, feel free to read about it. Then there's the agnostic. Um, we don't usually say agnosticism. You've heard Gnosticism, uh, the, uh, the early cult uh, uh, within Christianity. Uh, Gnosticism is a claim of ignorance. Uh, a, the alpha privative, means without, and uh, Gnostic, or from the Greek Gnosticism, or Gnosis, rather, is how the Greek would say it, is they just claim ignorance. I don't know. I don't know if God exists or not. He could. Uh, maybe he, he doesn't. Of course, atheism, uh, same thing, A. Uh, and then theist, or from theos, God, no God. Uh, they completely reject the existence of God. And then there's us. We are the Christian theists, the Christian theists who believe in the one true personal God uh, as he is revealed in the Bible. Are there other theisms out there? Uh, really, there's just variations of the one that we've, that we've talked about tonight. But in Psalm 14, David, uh, I think really, specifically for the first time in Scripture, he gives his attention to uh, this group that we know of as, 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 the athe as atheism, and they outright, in every way, reject the existence of God, everything supernatural. Uh, to them, everything time, space, and matter. It, you know, matter is eternal, and all the things that we see today, especially living things, are a product of nature. They're, so you might hear, instead of atheist, there's the naturalist. Now, not somebody who likes nature, but someone who says that nature is all there is. That's, that's it. Everything is a, is a product of nature. Nothing transcendent at all. Um, the problem with atheism arises immediately. Um, David just instantly throws it out there. And according to David, who is speaking by the Spirit, he says that atheism is a product of moral foolishness, not the other way around. Not the other way around. Now, this is where some commentators 
and even uh, philosophers, they get the cart before the horse and say that atheism is what led to corruption and abominable behavior. That's not correct, okay? Uh, even atheists play their hand this way, saying that it, that it was their atheism that led them to certain ideas, okay? But that's not what David says here in the text. Uh, neither is that actually Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter one and two. In fact, Paul says that in reality, there's no such thing as an atheist. Romans chapter one, verses nine through, through 21. And David speaks of the atheist as a theist in denial. That is, the atheist knows that God exists, but he rejects him. So really, God doesn't believe in atheists because they don't actually exist, okay? Atheism, as far as David is coming at it here, is a product of corruption, not vice versa, okay? One embraces atheism, not because the evidence would lead to such a conclusion, but because of something vile in the person, something that is broken about them, because neither science nor philosophy has led anyone to naturalism. It has always occurred because of perversity in, a, in, a, in, the, in the human heart, okay? Now, as a philosophy, atheism has been so thoroughly debunked that only stubbornness can account for its continuation. That's the only thing, okay? The problem is not atheism, as we said, it's perversity. Then that gives birth to atheism. That's, corruption is the driving force behind it. I think that it's dangerous to flip them around. Atheism is just a tool of evil. It's just a, a way of advancing dangerous ideas, okay? Many of which have been fleshed out in history. How many of you guys have engaged with an atheist or thought you did maybe, or they thought that they were an atheist? They are, there's a wide variety of people that claim to be atheists. Um, how many of you guys have watched uh, debates between a Christian theist and an, an atheist? Yeah, maybe you've noticed this, that atheists are really no longer, uh, at least as much, trying to disprove God's existence, which you'd think that that's really what they would be doing, okay? That is actually proven futile for them. What the new atheist does is he tries to incriminate God by accusing God of being evil. That's what the whole debate is today. It's not whether or not God exists. It's whether or not God is good, whether he is good, okay? They want God to look evil so that they can turn people away from him. That's what this whole thing is about now, okay? God is not good, he is bad, and therefore he is unworthy of our love and our devotion. Now, that is the epitome of sinister and evil. Atheism is satanic, okay? Um, in all of my engagement with atheists over the years, I have not had one try to convince me that God does not exist. I'm not very old, but I've engaged with plenty of them. And my earlier preconceptions about atheism was this debate is going to lead to me demonstrating evidence for God's existence and him providing his evidence for God's non-existence. It's never happened. It's always God is not good and you should not believe in him. You should not worship him. Yeah, crazy, huh? So in the church today, we spend a lot of time arguing for the existence of God and making our case. I think we need to shift from defending the existence of God, because the scriptures take him for granted, but defending the goodness of God from the evils of atheism. 
That's how I think we should be training people today. Yeah. Look again at our, our text. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There's none who does good. So moral foolishness leads to atheism, which then leads to more corruption and abominable works. Notice that David says, none who confess atheism are good. They are all bad. How many of you guys have met nice atheists? I have. I've even met extremely moral atheists, which is, which is uh, uh, I think it's counter, it's counter to their own position um, because they have this idea that moralism can be a thing without God. Um, uh, we don't want to get into that debate tonight, but it's very interesting. Um, but David says the most abominable thing about them is what they say in their heart, that is, there's no God. Uh, rejecting God, rejecting his commands is by far the worst thing. Um, Paul, as we've already mentioned, he comments on the real issue behind all of this in Romans 1, 18 through 23. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, in unrighteousness. The, the atheist is the supreme leader in the suppression of truth. He's the, he's the prophet, as it were. Verse 19 of Romans 1 says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So Paul is saying he believes in God, but he refuses to acknowledge him or obey him. And verse 20 says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, that's us, even God's eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without an excuse. They're without excuse. God's eternal power and his deity, Paul says, is on display in the universe, in the creation, for all to understand, for all to see, that is from the simplest person, to the most sophisticated or intellectual person. And he says, therefore, everyone, everyone is without an excuse who deny God and his commands. Verse 21, because he says, although they knew God, so nobody can claim agnosticism either, not atheism and not agnosticism. He says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you see the moral decline in that? It's all, that the whole chapter is about moral decline. But he says, they see and know the truth, but then they take the truth and they suppress it. They force it down. They force it out of sight, out of their hearing. He says, then when they do that, their thoughts become futile and their foolish hearts are darkened. Of course, now that's, and that's a figure of speech. It's speaking morally. So it's just this, it goes from moral depravity to greater moral depravity to greater moral depravity. And Romans 1.22, verse 22 goes on to say, professing to be wise, they became fools. It's this perverse fool that says in his heart that there is no God. He has uh, uh, gone down that road. He's become that, and it was from corruption. So I think we have to understand, and we should agree, especially when you're watching a debate between a Harvard professor and a Christian theist, 
that some of the most sophisticated and intellectual people in the world are the biggest fools in the world, the biggest fools in the world. James Montgomery Boyce, he comments on these verses saying, this, this all means that they try to live without God because they do not like him. Remember, that's the complaint. It's not that God doesn't exist, it's that they don't like how he behaves. That's the complaint. They don't like him. Everything about him is an offense to them. He is sovereign, they are not, though they wish they could be. He is holy, they are not. His holiness is a condemnation of their sin. He is omniscient, they are not. They find his knowledge of them to be unsettling. He is love, they are filled with hatred. He is gracious, they are ungracious. He is wise, they are foolish. They are so foolish that they suppress what they really do know about him and cry, often with great heat and sometimes even with great sophistication, there is no God. So they go from corruption to further corruption and then to atheism. They don't begin at atheism, but through corruption they become that. Romans 1.23 goes on, says change. They change the glory of the incorruptible God into, the image of, into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So corruption doesn't always lead to atheism. In fact, usually it does not. Usually it leads to idolatry in one form or another. But even atheism is a form of idolatry because atheism elevates man and his supposed intellect. Man then becomes the object of worship. It's myself because I'm smarter than everyone else in the world. Atheism is strange, a strange game. These are David's initial thoughts. Let's look at God's thoughts. But notice how things broaden. David focused in on the one who says, no God. But God says, here, he's explaining the Lord. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. God says nothing of the atheist, does he? Nothing. Uh, he, he perhaps doesn't see things in, in those categories. He just sees moral corruption. Uh, the, the garden variety of perverse people, uh, it makes no difference to him. He looks down from heaven to consider the moral condition of the human race, and he concludes that no one has understanding. No one seeks after me. Every one of them have turned aside. They have all together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, there's not even one. Yeah. Is God's perspective objective? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. He's talking about the whole lot of us, not just the atheist. Every one of us, every son of man is corrupt, morally depraved, and by nature do not seek after God. They do not seek after God. Why? Because all of us were born into rebellion. Born into rebellion. Yeah. By their very nature, they turn from God. I remember in Wyoming, at the church we were at, this couple that started coming, they were there for a few months, and then they they sort of confided in us that they had started coming because they were at the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church said that their children were sinners. Well, how do I break this to you? <laughs> None seek after God. Jesus said, no one comes to the Son unless the Father draw that person 
to the Son. Man has no inclination within himself to seek after God. His only inclination is to rebel. John 6.44, no one finds God. He finds us and he awakens us to himself. Something uh, theologians refer to, some theologians, as provenial grace, okay? Provenial grace. And mankind is this way because of Adam's deliberate sin in the garden where he was placed to be the head the representative of the human race, his sinful actions were attributed to us as a race. Romans chapter 5 deals with all of the theology of that, also uh, 1 Corinthians 15. He was our representative, his actions attributed to us. His spiritual death as a result of rebellion was transferred to us so that we are born in spiritual rebellion, every single one of us, separated from the life of God. David said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. You weren't just born a sinner, you were conceived in a state of depravity, of moral depravity. That's what David says by the Spirit. I have always been morally depraved. There was never a moment in my life where I was intrinsically or inherently good. Now, I may not have committed any sins yet, but I'm a sinner. The illustration I've often given is when a puppy is born, it's a dog, even though it hasn't you know, marked its territory. It's just a matter of time because of what it is. You get it? Because of what it is. It's only a matter of time before we, after our birth, commit sins because we are sinful by nature. It's crazy. So since Adam, people, even though they're created in the image of God, they were born after the image of that rebel, yeah, an image that was marred by sin. So God is here vocalizing what he sees in man, what is true about man. Now, of course, through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, our moral brokenness is affected, but it's not eradicated. Now, there are some people, theologians in the past, that have believed that, and then that theology leads them to, you can be morally perfect in this life. And then they disproved it in their life, okay? Uh, I believe it was John Wesley. Who was the singer? Who was the preacher? John Wesley. So John Wesley was preaching one time, and his wife came in the back of the church, interrupted, and said, don't believe that man. He's a hypocrite. Shandy, you will never be invited to church again (laughs) if you do that. (laughs) Paul says that the believer's old nature grows corrupt. Ephesians 4.22. Have you ever noticed that? The more, the more you grow in your faith, the more your flesh becomes more agitated and resistant to the things of God. Yeah. Paul says, I know that in me, he says this as a believer, I know that in me, that, in, that is my flesh, nothing good dwells. Nothing good dwells. And then chapter 7 of Romans, verses, I believe it's 13 to the end, describes Paul's struggle with his flesh as a believer, okay? So the regeneration of the Holy Spirit does not annihilate the old man or our corrupt nature, okay? By the Holy Spirit, the flesh, Paul says in Romans 6, loses its dominion, its power over us so that we can walk in righteousness by the Spirit's power, okay? That's the truth that we learn in Romans chapter 6 and chapter 8. Back to our text. 
Again, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They've all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. We are broken. God knows it. And if you spend five minutes in a nursery, you can write your dissertation on it. Okay? Yeah. I don't think there's any facts more obvious about humanity than our moral depravity. It doesn't take but a second. We are so broken. But of course, God has done for us more than just observed our wickedness. I don't want to leave you with just depravity. He's gone to our rescue. Amen? But notice the language here. It says, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Yeah, the ungodly. Uh, there, was, there was no righteous people to rescue, no righteous people to die for. Okay, Romans 4, 5, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. There is only ungodly people in the world to justify, right? That's it. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, Luke 5.32. If he called out to the righteous, there would be no one to answer, not a single one. I like to say that Jesus ate with sinners, so he didn't have to eat alone, okay? Mark 2.16. Paul says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So God in Christ Jesus entered into a world that was broken by sin that he might save them, right? We don't want to leave the gospel out of the psalm here. Verse four, now David is more speaking. He says, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? Paul's question here is in response to God's conclusion. God looked to see if there were any with understanding, but no, there wasn't any. And David's like, none? None? There's none. No, not one. And then he goes on to say they destroy people's lives. That's the people of God. They eat bread, which came from God, but in both instances, they give no thought to God, no thought of God. They do not concern themselves with the consequences of injustice. They give no thought to where their provisions come from. Wicked people truly have no understanding no understanding. But their day is coming because God is watching and he will act. So David says, there they are in great fear for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Now David in verse five is actually looking forward prophetically to the day when God confronts the wicked for all of their evil that they've done to his people. That will be a dark day. It will also be a brilliant day. They will be gripped by fear in the face of his wrath. That's what David's talking about. Gripped by fear. And then he says, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Again, looking forward, it's prophetic. Now look at what David says. He mentions a time when the Lord brings his people back from captivity. Here it's connected to salvation coming out of Zion. What's interesting about, how do we know that's prophetic? David lived in a thousand, around a thousand BC. So how do we know that's prophetic? When did Israel go into captivity? Okay, the first, the first deportation was what, 606 BC? 
And then, uh, what, seven, eight years later, there was another one. So David wasn't alive during the captivity. So he's definitely look, looking forward. But I think there's some challenges here because what he is predicting in the passage doesn't really come to pass when Israel returns from Babylon. We're looking yet even further. Isaiah said in 59.20, the Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. Well, some more prophecy. This will occur when God brings the children of of Jacob back to their land in the last days. That's what David is talking about when he brings them back. Of course, back is always to uh, specifically, more specifically, Jerusalem, when he restores them to their inheritance. He'll restore them to himself. But when has that happened? It hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. He will do it when they exercise faith in Christ, who is their redeemer. Uh, David, by way of the Holy Spirit, is prophesying about the fulfillment of the promise of God to ethnic Israel, the redemption promise. We've spent plenty of time there in the last few months. And the land promise, okay? All of those things will be realized at Christ's return when he comes to reign over the earth. And at that time, ethnic Israel will rejoice and be glad. Now, that's significant because it's been a long time since Israel has been able to rejoice and be glad in God. As a people, they have been excluded from God. They've been excluded from his grace because they've rejected Christ. They have. Now, it's, some people today, it's, it's mystifying to me, they believe that Israel is still accepted by practicing Judaism, like they're somehow grandfathered in to the new covenant. Uh, John the Apostle was very clear when he said this, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Ethnic Israel is currently denying the Son. They are under divine chastisement. They do not have the Father. They don't. They have nothing to be glad about. They have nothing to rejoice in yet. But the day is coming when the Jew will embrace Christ as their Messiah King, as the Son of God. And then they'll be reconciled to the Father. And then they'll be glad. And then they'll have something to rejoice about. But not until then. There's nothing to rejoice about when you're separated from God the Father. Interesting psalm, isn't it? We began with atheism, and we, we ended with redemption of ethnic Israel, prophetically. Yeah. All right, if you have any questions about some of the theisms that I addressed, uh, or you wanted pointed in a direction for further study, um, I would be glad to point you on. Why don't you stand up and we'll pray. It appears as if I'm letting you out early, but we didn't have as many songs tonight. So I taught just as long. Let's pray. Well, Father, all of the text is true about atheists, about the human heart, about our condition, especially our condition apart from Christ. But Lord, we don't want to be just studying the atheist or those that are apart from you. We want to understand their plight so that we will try to reach them. It's, it, it's not okay for us to just know the difference. As your people today in the new covenant, we have an obligation to try to save some, as Paul said. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Lord, we have what you've given to us that they so desperately need. So help us to consider their fate. 
Help us, as, as Paul said to Titus, basically said, remember where you came from so that you don't forget to reach out to others. So Lord, help us to be good ambassadors. Help us to be winsome. Help us to be a light to those around us. Father, I thank you for my church family, and I do pray that you would empower them to do that, empower me. And in advance, I pray for our trip tomorrow that we could just have loads of fun and uh, be, be safe. So Lord, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Lord bless you guys.